0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org.
1: Well hello and welcome to a new episode of the Hike Program Podcasts. Well, as you probably recall, as a listener of the podcast, Money and the Rule of Law, Generality and Predictability and Monetary Institutions came out last year in 2021. It was written by Peter Betke, Alexander Salter, and Daniel Smith. And shortly after that, we had a book panel discussion of the book, and we received very positive feedback from that. Well, we're several months on now from both the release of the book and also from the book panel episode, and we thought now would be a good time to tackle some questions that have arisen in the interim since that release. And so Peter Beckke and Dan Smith have graciously agreed uh, to join me today and answer some of those questions. And so without further ado, we will jump right into those. All right, our first question. Who are the most influential interest groups impacting monetary institutions, specifically for the United States, but can be for other countries as well? And this is submitted by Peter Haslett.
2: So when um, uh, Alex, Dan, and I were sitting down to write the book, um, you know, first of all, the book Money and the Rule of Law is very American-centric, it's very US-centric. So it doesn't talk about central banks worldwide. There obviously are lessons about central banks worldwide, but let's just stay um, on the US system. And we were in many ways very influenced by a common professor of all of us, uh, Richard Wagner, um, and this, uh, the work that Wagner did in the 1970s, uh, applying public choice to the Austrian business cycle theory and the notion of boom bust and political business cycles. And so when you ask the question of, you know who, what are the interest groups that are impacted by monetary institutions, I would start by the idea that uh, from a political business cycle point of view, uh, the monetary institutions are impacting the political elites the most because they're determining basically their electoral success. And so we can take that as a hypothesis to then explore on that. But then there's other groups that are tied to those uh, electoral success. For example, at one time when union membership was very large in the United States, you know, the unions played a very big role in dictating electoral success. And therefore they would have an impact on why it is I would wanna have monetary policy in one way rather than another way. And so you'd have to identify those kind of groups today. Um, And so in this sense, it's very much, you know, so Milton Friedman wrote a book called Monetary Mischief. Um, But before that he had written a book called The Tyranny of the Status Quo. And in The Tyranny of Status Quo, He tried to explain why it is that even when there's been a a massive shift in public opinion, it's so difficult to change the structure of government in a way that would be towards a more rule of law based, more uh, open economy, free market economy rather than government regulated economy. And he postulates that there's an iron triangle. And so there's this iron triangles of interest between the politicians, the permanent bureaucracy, and then the special interest groups. And that they align together to make sure. And this is a line from Wagner that monetary policy is done in a way that benefits those who created the institutions for those for their you know favor and their interests. And I think that's you know that isn't a specific answer, but it's a way we frame thinking about the issue. And then the last thing I would say about that is one way to think about what we're doing public policy wise in general is we're we're sifting through various different institutional uh, mechanisms to look and see about means-ends efficiency to see whether or not the institution is coherent with respect to the goals it sets for itself. So that's the first test, because you could imagine an institutional solution that isn't coherent with respect to its ends, and then we should reject that institution. But what we're also doing is if it passes the first test, the means ends, we then subject to a vulnerability test. So is that institution vulnerable to the opportunistic behavior of any of the actors in the institution to act strategically to benefit themselves at the expense of others? And when you get that, then that raises a whole other set of questions. So Dan and I, uh, in earlier work that we did that gets fed into the book, talking about the evolution of monetary policy views and monetary theory views of of Hayek, Buchanan, and, 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 um, and Friedman. Milton Friedman has this great passage in Capitalism and Freedom where he basically argues that the central bank is going to be subject to these interest group manipulations. And as he says, sometimes maybe we the central banking is too important to be left to the central bankers. And that, that notion and thinking about that I think permeates throughout our book is thinking about what are those institutions that meet the means-ends test, but then what are the institutions which also can survive against opportunistic behavior, serve as a check against it. And if we sort through that, which is why the rule of law becomes so important is because that's one of the ways that you try to do that, have non-discriminatory politics, then maybe that gets us a a central bank that's worthy of the task that it's trying to set up for itself. But Dan, you have a... Yeah, I think the
3: the only other thing I would add to that is it really highlights the importance of the approach we bring, looking at kind of a historical case study of different pressures. Because I think at any one point, the what. Th- Um, The influence that a special interest group has has changed according to the political context at that time. So sometimes you see it's the farmers or the home builders. Sometimes it's Wall Street. Other times it's Congress. So I I think, um, you know, if you're just looking at any one type of influence, you tend to lose out on the overall picture and may not get the full extent of influence being exerted on central banking institutions over time. Really important, I think, is is not to forget the uh, special interest group of the Federal Reserve itself as employees. At, a, at an entrenched bureaucratic institution that have, a, 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 there's not a lot of con, uh, accountability. And, um, you know, when you're the major employer of monetary economists around the world, uh, that does give you a lot of um, professional and um, policy sway um, over the direction of, of central banking.
1: All right, very good. Moving on to our second question. What are the best institutional constraints that can be put in place whether on the Fed, Congress, or the executive branch, to get the Fed following rules-based monetary policy. Submitted by Thomas Savage.
3: Yeah, so I think this is a this is a great question, and fundamentally this is the question that we want our book to inspire, because we focus most of this book on making the case for having rules, um, but we spend a little bit less time uh, and this may be a fault of the book, but actually I, I, we really wanted to focus just getting back to, to people asking this question, say, how can we actually constrain central banking institutions? You know, we, we highlight three different mechanisms in the book. Uh, one of them is, uh, is simply um, you know, create some type of monetary rule like the Taylor Rule or uh, NGDP targeting and make it, in, uh, it has to be enforceable So it has to have punishment mechanisms, possibly reward mechanisms. It can't just be a pseudo rule that you know central bankers have the discretion to say what the rule is and when we can deviate from the rule. No, it's got to be a really tightly binding rule. And it's really hard around the world um, when you look at central banks that have tried to impose some type of inflation targeting rule. um, You oftentimes see that there's either not a punishment mechanism, or they actually change the targets over time. So there's a there's a, a, a lot of discretion in the rules that have been applied thus far. Um, you know, I, I think one of the ones that, you know, I won't speak on behalf of my co-authors, but one of my favorite one types of rules would be NGDP targeting. Um, I, th- I think it solves a lot of knowledge problems that, the, yeah. that central banks face. Um, and it could also be very, you know, it, it, you, you can explicitly write it and, and make it enforceable. The other Two mechanisms um, that we discussed is one is constitutionalized money. So, if money is to be seen as a property right of citizens rather than a prerogative of central bankers, why not put it in the Constitution alongside other fundamental rights? Um, that people, you know, it's, it's a fundamental basis of a of, of free society, one of the most important mechanisms for why capitalism outperforms um, other uh, types of institutions like socialism. Um, So put it there in the Constitution and and, and protect it, uh, at least relatively, um, from the discretion of politicians. Then the third one, which I find the most intriguing but is also the the politically least feasible, is free banking. And that would be – it sounds radical, but I I think there's a lot of good research looking at historical episodes and exploring the theoretical possibility of this, allowing banks to actually, actually issue competitive currency um, a, a, even against central banks as an alternative, as a disciplinary mechanism uh, on the market. And there's automatic adjustment processes in the market that would ensure that if a bank was over-issuing currency, people would redeem that currency. Um, so it solves the knowledge and center problems that central banks face in trying to be a, a monopoly sup- supplier of fiat currency. Um, so yeah, we, we explore those three avenues. There could be more than that. Um, but those are, are the three top ones. Of those three, my favorite is free banking. But like I said, I, I also think it's, it's at least in the current political regime, uh, unfeasible.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, that um, in one way, um, we are trying to put the notion of rule-based policy back at the core and to disabuse people, that the idea of um, basically... Uh, Constrained discretion can substitute for rule-based policy, so we're trying to to knock out the legs from arguments to get us back to a position where we agree that mo- a monetary policy must fit like with all other fundamental policies, and then it may be the case, like Friedman, as Dan and uh, Dan and I did in these other papers, and also with Alex you know, where we make the argument that you look at the evolution of these people's arguments and they started, you know, someone like Hayek is a monetary equilibrium theorist, the most consistent position for a central bank under a monetary equilibrium would be an NGP targeting kind of position. And, you know, Hayek kind of evolves to that position Um, at an earlier time. He, you might've said he was a gold standard guy. And, you know, he takes different bites of an apple as he goes through his career. And he, he leaves the earlier position because he's frustrated with the ability to achieve it in the world. And we want to get back to that evolution because it might actually end up by being that the alternative that can actually achieve the kind of uh, stability and predictability in money is actually a free banking system, which is so counterintuitive, but we don't explore that in detail. We point backwards to the work of, our, you know, uh, colleagues uh, Larry White and George Selgin, um, but also forward to, you know, uh, people that are going to write the next book, maybe Dan Smith and Alex Salter and and others, and Will Luther and Tom Hogan and a bunch of other scholars that are trying to wrestle with this at the moment. And I think that that's how the book kind of ends. It's a, it, it 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 sort of sets us back onto a conversation that has a future trajectory, which we don't go all the way through. But going back to Dan's answer to the first question, you know, one of the things that is should not be questioned is that the Federal Reserve has been captured and is under political pressure. So the idea that it's an independent central bank that hasn't been batted around with political pressure, you know, we detail in it with very you know uh, documentary evidence the ways in which it has been subject to political influence throughout its history. And, uh, you know, that is an important component to understanding how that institution is vulnerable to this opportunistic behavior. So it has to be fixed. Um, and then we also spent a lot of time showing that they can't do what the market would do, which is one of the reasons why the nominal income, you know, uh, targeting goal is actually a better is because in many ways it's, it's relying on a market to generate that information rather than the government being able to try to set money supply equal to money demand. We're getting information all the time to to adjust and adopt. And so we're dealing with those knowledge problems to try to find the right institution. So we have knowledge problems and we have the public choice problems. And what institutions would maybe fit those that is consistent with the rule of law, which is a meta argument about how the society should be organized. You know, and that's it. But it may be the case that when we trace the trajectory out, that the core institution which we leave as given is the institution that must be challenged, which is central banking. So we do not challenge central banking in this book per se, right? We're, We're working within a world where people say there's a central bank and how would you organize policy? Now, in the process, we're raising a bunch of questions about central banking's effectiveness that may push you on a trajectory which pushes you Again, like to White and Selgin's work on how would the invisible hand handle money? But we think in a forward way, building off of their work, um, at least that's a hope, I think. Yeah.
1: Jim Covington asks our third question, how does the Hayekian triangle work? I've had confusion about it in the past and would love to see some clarification on what it is.
2: Okay, so, I mean, in a very technical sense, you know, or, or sort of basic definitional sense, let's start with that. The Hayekian Triangle is just trying to explain the relationship between goods of a higher order and goods of a lower order in an economy. And what I mean by goods of the higher order and goods of the lower order is simply capital goods and, consu- and, and consumer goods. And so one way to think about this is in order for you to enjoy your, your, uh, you know, bacon with your eggs in the morning, someone has to raise hogs. On a, on a farm and they have to invest in hogs with an expectation of being able to sell bacon down the road. And if they you know, couldn't sell the bacon or tastes of bacon changed such that we don't have as much bacon, then all of a sudden that's gonna affect the, the producer goods or capital goods that are invested in making hogs. And so the relationship between these uh, producer goods and consumer goods is mediated through time so it, it it takes time to produce a hog that will produce bacon or produce a ham sandwich. And so how do I coordinate that activity through time? So let's move away from, you know, a simple thing like a hog and bacon to things like right now someone is working on an automobile that won't be used for another ten years, but I'm paying engineers, I'm investing in. You know, getting the materials and building the computer programs to help with the manufacturing of all that. All that is going on various stages of production in order to produce cars down the road. But if all of a sudden consumer demands shift because cars are desired less, then that's going to change what those investments were, the value of those investments. And remember, each one of those investments is a profit and loss calculation. And so the Hayekian triangle is showing what it would look like if it was perfectly coordinated, meaning that the intertemporal coordination process was mediated through interest rates, which are determined by the market, which reflect the savings and, tr- uh, savings and consumption trade-offs that people wanna do so that the investments match with the consumption that you're going on, So, right? Well, what happens when that gets distorted? So a large part of our book begins with the basic idea of the ubiquitousness of monetary calculation. So monetary calculation is core to the story of the book. Um, and that's because money is one half of all exchanges. In a modern economy, goods trade for money and money purchase goods. Or you know, money purchases goods and then goods purchase money. <laughs> What we never have is goods just producing goods, uh, you know, uh, trading for goods. We don't have a sophisticated barter economy. So that means money is one half of all exchanges in the economy. And if money is one half of all the exchanges in the economy, if you mess up the money, if you engage in what Milton Friedman called monetary mischief, that mischief has a lot more impact than just on prices changing right? It it distorts the ability to engage in investment activity. Investment and production gets distorted, and we end up by producing things in the wrong place at the wrong time, using the wrong workers, and and we have then booms and busts. And so we want to make sure that we handle monetary mischief precisely because the errors that are produced by that mischief have a deeper problem in the economy the more we recognize the intricate complexity of the production schedule and when economists don't pay attention to the time structure of production because for tractability reasons they treat capital different then what that does is they don't miss the monetary mischief they just miss the full difficulties that monetary mischief forces upon an economy And so that's why the Hayekian approach to capital, which is capital is made up, the capital structure is made up of heterogeneous goods that have multiple specific uses. And that means that the economic calculation of the uses of those goods is so sensitive to these outcomes that if you make an error in that, it's not like you can just cautiously rearrange the capital the capital is lumpy and it, it causes time and difficulties and delays and everything like that. And so that creates waste. That waste leads to less uh, gains from trade, less wealth creation in your society. And you end up by having, you know, as I said, the, the bust phase. And so that's why we are working with that Hayekian triangle and, and trying to uh, clarify that relationship between investment and production and the relative prices that coordinate that with consumption. So the production plans of some must mess with the consumption demands of others. That is achieved through the relative prices in a market economy. Intertemporally, that price is the interest rate. The interest rate is manipulated, can be manipulated by the monetary authority uh, through their conscious decision. That creates monetary mischief. That leads to the misallocation of capital.
3: Therefore, creating problems in your economy. Yeah, so uh, I mean, the the only thing I would add to that is I think when, like, we talk about um, prior to the financial crisis, that um, the Federal Reserve was um, engaging in too easy of a monetary policy. And so, what that implies when it comes to the Hayekian Triangle is that um, artificially low interest rates were causing people to consume more because the the interest rate was was low, so they could take out consumer loans, more automobile loans, more, you know, buy more houses or bigger houses than they were expecting to. Um, but on the investment side, interest rates are low, so they're also supplying less capital yeah. um, uh, as well. So you, you get in this weird situation where resources are being pulled in Different directions intertemporally, and that's unsustainable. And eventually, it's going to, um, according to the Austrian theory, lead to a collapse. And then on the flip side, we argue after the financial crisis hit, the monetary policy got too tight, and then you get to the opposite uh, problem occurring. So you go from one extreme to the other, and this is. Precisely during times of uncertainty, when there's a recession like that, you want to allocate resources back to, to the under underlying true, you know, the true value that consumers place on them, where, where they should be, um, and this just creates uh, interjects uncertainty into the process when it's already a very uncertain environment for entrepreneurs to to try to wade through.
1: Coming in with our fourth question is Jeff Tambier. He asks, "Do you believe that there will be a resurgence of interest in Austrian macroeconomics after the COVID recession?"
2: So following up on what Dan was just talking about, um, it's a this is a very interesting question because uh, the, the book focuses a lot on the financial crisis because the financial crisis was a monetary-induced boom and bust cycle, we would contend, that was directed in a particular way because of real policies that steered investments towards housing markets and particular things, right? But it still nevertheless was a function of of monetary policy that created this issue and then exacerbated it when they were trying to do the correction, okay? Now, COVID is a supply shock, which is a different kind of recession. So the COVID recession and the original recovery are not themselves an Austrian-type cycle. Um, It doesn't mean that Austrian cycle theory is wrong. It just means that it's not applicable to that particular moment in time because that was a supply shock uh, and it's sort of like a real business cycle kind of story. But the shock did reveal some of the vulnerabilities of the policies that have been adopted since 2008. So I would argue, and I, I don't want to hold my author co-authors to the same thing, But, uh, you know, I would argue that, like, say, the zero lower bound kind of stuff and other kinds of monetary policies that we engaged in um, just simply meant that we were losing out on the number of bullets that we had that we could address this issue with monetary policy as opposed to addressing it with fiscal policy, which is why it is that it all went into the fiscal policy side. But then the reality is, is that, you know, the old juggling trick of fiscal policy is you run deficits that accumulate in the public debt, and then you debase the currency, which then ends up by screwing up the monetary policy and you get monetary mischief. So, you know, I kid around a lot. I I started kidding around during the, the, as Dan knows, because he worked with me on some of these things. I started kidding around, you know, in the 2008, 2009, 2010 period, I would walk around, I'd have a copy of Hayek's Tiger by the Tail and Buchanan and, and Wagner's Democracy and Deficits. And I'd say, look, I want to box the ears of you know policymakers with these two books because we have monetary the the monetary legacy of Keynes, which is monetary mischief, and you have the fiscal legacy of Keynes, which is fiscal irresponsibility. You put the two of them together, and it's not a good recipe for the future of of you know mankind or whatever right and and uh, so you know now you know I mean that's maybe overstating and hyperbola or whatever now so what's fascinating, I think is that what the COVID has done is it has forced us to pay attention to a variety of policy shocks. So you have supply side shocks, you have monetary shocks, you can have fiscal shocks and understanding. So I think this gets us back to understanding Austrian macroeconomics. What do I mean by that? Too many people think Austrian macroeconomics should be viewed in a very... Uh, kind of rote manner, right? That is, you start with a supply and demand curve for loanable funds. You move the, the interest rate artificially below the market rate. That leads to people biting off more investment projects than they can chew. The, the reality when uh, is as the money works its way through the system, is consumer preferences reassert itself, that means that they're going to have to continually bid up to get the resources for the investment. They prove to be a bust. And so we get this boom and bust cycle. Okay, For teaching principles of economics, the bite, chew, and choke you know, kind of approach of Austrian business cycle is correct. But I think for sophisticated economists, this story is a little bit more nuanced, which is we, it's a set of components about how you approach a problem in macroeconomics. So keep in mind that there is no such thing as macroeconomics. There may be macroeconomic phenomena but it can only be understood and addressed with microeconomics. So all economics in many ways is relative price economics. So we have to force to that. But what are the components? One, money is non-neutral. Like what I said earlier, money is one half of all exchanges. If you screw around with money, you're gonna screw around with all exchanges, which is gonna distort the relative price structure in the economy. Two, capital is made up of heterogeneous and multi-specific goods. That is, is that you know you can use steel, to produce a variety of goods, but you can't really use steel to produce a backpack and 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 or your shoes or your pants that you're wearing um, and these kind of things. And so, capital is has multiple uses, multiple specific uses, but it's not homogeneous. It can't be used for all uses, and that means that we have to be sensitive to the relative prices because they're going to guide us in the way that we engage in production activity. So, money's neutral, non, uh, non-neutral. Uh, you know, uh, capital is made up of heterogeneous multispecific goods and that production activity takes place through time. All right, So therefore we're going to put a premium on the interest rate and the way in which we engage in intertemporal coordination. And so really at the end of the day, economics is a coordination problem. And the way the coordination problem is solved, and remember that coordination problem is the production plans of some must mess with the consumption demands of others. And the way that that happens is through relative prices. So property, prices, and profit and loss. Property rights are going to incentivize us. Relative prices guide us. Profits lure us. Losses discipline us. And any time we attenuate that process, we're going to have coordination problems. And so my, so that's the basic Austrian cycle theory, the economics of coordination problem, and this non-neutral money heterogeneous and multi-specific capital goods, and that economic processes take place through time. Now, COVID. Dan wants to uh, sell wine. He wants to open up a vineyard and sell wine, uh, but he can't find anyone to work on his vineyard. So, you know, he, would, we'll would call that a supply chain problem, right? <laughs> right? He can't get anyone to help him produce the wine. I would like to consume wine, but I can't get a job. To consume the wine, but why can't I go work in Dan's farm, you know, vineyard, and then be able to do that? Well, right now we're not being able to solve that coordination problem. We're talking on November fifth uh, in the afternoon. I didn't get a chance to look at the jobs report today, but it was released earlier this morning, and they were expecting, at least in the pre-market uh, expectations, that 450,000 new jobs would be added to the rolls, uh, you know, in this in the month of October. So I should check that to see if that's what happened. And, uh, but what's, what's interesting is, is that um, you know, we have the largest joblessness rate that we've ever had right now. And that's a coordination problem. What's going on with that? And so part of the book that Dan and Alex and I wrote is we're trying to forge an adult conversation in our profession about a c- serious problems. So what is the end game strategy for the Fed after we gave the Fed extraordinary measures, right? That's one. What is going on with these, you know, structural like difficulties with unemployment? You know, we're all public choice scholars. So we've spent a lot of time talking about a rent-seeking society and the rise of a rent-seeking society. Well, if we're living in a rent-seeking society, that creates all kinds of gumming up of labor markets right, that create all the problems that a lot of people identify as thinking that's what capitalism does. But like a lot of the mobility issues and other things like that are all because of rent seeking and privileges that need to be eradicated. And we're trying to identify some of those things. So we're trying to have an adult conversation about, you know, the the, the policies of the Fed. We're trying to have an adult conversation about the difficulties in labor markets that are caused by gumming up labor markets. And we don't do it in here, but again, pointing to it, we would want to have a conversation about promissory politics and fiscal responsibility and what the consequences of that are because of the inner relationship between fiscal and monetary policy and the pressures that are in the monetary policy and the fiscal policy. So if you're asking me, is Austrian business cycle theory gonna explain post COVID? I would say that's a little bit more difficult because it's not necessarily a monetary induced, but is macroeconomics from a price theoretic framework going to get a boost? And I would say, yeah, because that's that's the only way you can really have the right explanation for these supply chain issues that we're dealing with, what the consequences are when you know Alex has been amazing at getting our uh, his point of view and uh, aspect slices of our point of view in very nice outlets. a lot of Wall Street Journal articles since the book's been published, and he had a very interesting one about you know what's going on with quote unquote inflation you know at the moment because it is true that. The Fed has been very loose in a lot of ways. And that goes back to the zero lower you know, bound and all that kind of stuff and TAMP, you know, uh, whether or not they're gonna you know, uh, sort of try to correct that. But the reality is is that these rising prices are a function of a supply constraint. And so there's a opening up of the economy means that you have more demand. The supply side hasn't been able to adjust as quickly for a variety of reasons. What's that going to do? It's going to put an upward pressure on prices in the economy. So how much of that is due to inflation versus just simply normal supply and demand reactions is very important for economists to sort out. And a lot of people that are influenced by Austrian economics jump too quickly to the idea that we're going to have hyperinflation because they look at the money supply and they don't look at the relationship between money supply and money demand. And so you know this is what causes some of the problems uh, there. Um, my saying that might get me in trouble with some people <laughs> that, that hear this or whatever. But I, I think macroeconomics from a price theoretic point of view is poised for a boom, right? But macroeconomics that just focuses on the monetary induced boom and bust cycle, that is consistent with a price theoretic macroeconomics. But it's, but it's not the only version of a price-theoretic uh, macroeconomics. And I think that's what we have to be careful of.
3: Do you have any? Yeah, the, the only thing I would add is I, I think um, COVID-19 and this, the Federal Reserve's response to it provides one of the best cases for why we need the rule of law applied to the Federal Reserve. Um, so, I mean, some of these policies that were implemented during COVID-19, such as direct lending to state and local governments right. and the moral hazard problems that that, that causes... Um, intervention in the bond market, which has no bank run problem, right? There's no uh, liquidity problem there that that the central bank needs to to solve. Um, And and that could prevent, we're talking about coordination, reallocation of resources. Companies like Boeing that were doing bad prior to COVID-19 were trying to lobby for a bailout. This policy hit, it's bailed out the bond market. Now they don't need to, 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 to get that bailout anymore. So one of the silver lines of a recession is that companies come out leaner and meaner on right. the other side, right? They either go under and reallocate resources to, to, to firms that are better, or they, they you know, get new management, they make changes, they cut costs. Um, with the policy implemented there in the bond market, we're not seeing a lot of that um, right. reallocation occurring. So we're coming out of this, I think, weaker than we would have without that policy. Um, the, the central bank lent money to major financial institutions to buy equity and that equity was held as collateral for those loans. So if those loans went bad, we would have this, this, the Federal Reserve holding U.S. stock. And that means they potentially could be voting on who was in charge of those companies. Um, there were already, uh, uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters was already like ab- agitating for, well, if we're going to be doing this, can we impose a $15 minimum wage through this capacity? Could we uh, impose environmental policies? Um, so there's there's a lot of Ways that legislators could actually impose some policies on corporations through these facilities um, if the Federal Reserve finds itself bailing out bond markets and and holding u s stock um, and then you know lending straight to um, main street businesses it, direct allocation of credit rather just providing li- uh general liquidity that puts the Federal Reserve in charge of picking winners and losers i i I think these These policies developed during COVID-19 represent a huge threat if used um, repeatedly every time there's a recession going forward, and there's no reason to to think they won't be employed. And the the legal monetary scholar Lev Menand has looked at the legality of of these programs, and consistently he finds that they actually violate the the explicit rule of law of the Federal Reserve. So it's it's clear that we have a a central bank that is operating outside of any legal uh, restraint and that is a great case for 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 what we're the the for the point we're making in the book that we def- desperately need to apply the rule of law that we appreciate in every other aspect of governance in a classical liberal society to apply to one of the most important um institutions central banking yeah i just just to wrap that up i think that is one of the really
2: key things to stress is that how uh by giving the fed these extraordinary powers during this time it actually deviates from its mission significantly and so we turned the fed into something that it was never designed to do and that creates problems and you know the, i mean the the origins weren't just with covid-19 i mean these issues what's going on in the in the bond market you know that started you know, years ago with Bernanke's Operation Twist. So everyone remembers quantitative easing, but the Operation Twist was a crucial part that's in addition to uh, to quantitative easing. So when they keep on talking about, you know, tapering, they keep on talking about quantitative easing, but the other tapering is getting the hell out of the, you know, the the the, the Operation Twist kind of idea. And so Selgin, you know, has has been very good at writing about these kind of things for the last decade. Um, you know, he had a great paper called Operation Twist the Truth, um, you know, to sort of laying all these things out. And, you know, to some extent, our book is highlighting those and then showing how when we were shocked with COVID, the response was to expand the uh, powers of the Fed even more than what they had earlier. and. That hasn't been brought up yet. And so we're trying to really push that conversation. And I think that's one of the reasons why the book um, was received well by former Fed officials. So, you know, our book gets some nice endorsements uh, from good monetary economists, you know, Leo Hanahan, John Taylor, Peter Ireland. But the other thing is, is that we had some former Fed presidents. You know, the, the president... Of I think the Atlanta Fed, the president of the Cleveland Fed, you know, and the reason is, is because when they look at these issues, they see a Federal Reserve, which is different from what it is that they think and understood was the the mandate of this institution. Um, And so they want to like say, hey, let's get back to our original mandate because it's that mandate, which is essential for uh, monetary policy in a free society, not these extraordinary measures.
1: Question number five belongs to Frank Vogel. He asks: Is the increase in relative prices always a consequence of inflation, according to the Austrians?
2: So this relates to just my capital, you know, start argument there. It is not everywhere, and in, so inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomena. But relative price changes are not always inflationary, um, and. So we're not talking about changes in in, in in price levels. That's a mistake that some macroeconomists focus on. So when I say a price theoretic macroeconomics, I mean a relative price uh, in economics that puts emphasis on the relative prices and the coordinating role that pri- property prices and profit loss play in a system. That's why in the very, very beginning of our book, we talk about what economic calculation is. In the very beginning of Mises' Human Action, he talks about monetary calculation, not monetary calculation about what socialism has a problem with, but how monetary calculation is how capitalism works, which is exactly what we're trying to do in our book as well. And so that requires the free exchange of goods and services to establish freely established exchange ratios, which are relative prices. But those relative prices are going up, they're going down, they're doing all kinds of things related to supply and demand conditions. And when we talk about inflation, those, those, those distortions happen because of factors other than supply and demand factors. And so that's why it takes, you know, you have to sort through those things. And so, not every time that we see an increase in price is it due to in, monetary inflation, but it could be. And so that's what requires research. Yeah. you have anything
3: to I, I think it also highlights the knowledge problems that we review in the book when it comes to central banks trying to, to figure out how, you know, what effect they're having on, on the economy. Um, how do you measure inflation? Because one of the issues right now is if you're just looking at year-to-year inflation, well, prices collapsed a year ago. So... It yes. looks like prices have increased drastically, but really, it's just a lot of that is just recovery to the prices, and then the supply side constraints as well that we're seeing. Yeah. Um, but it, it shows the difficulty that you know really good economists are arguing right now about whether we're seeing inflation, what the extent is, um, and then when yeah. now the central bank has changed its operating framework to to you know after the fact we're going to respond to inflation once it manifests. Well, are we going to target? you know, what, what's the time frame we're going to look at inflation over? How quickly are we going to get back to the target of 2% inflation? Um, yeah. You know, how, you know, how, over what time frame are you going to take to get back? I mean, there's, there's knowledge problems embedded in trying to interpret what's going on in the economy. And that's why we, we make the case for, for rules is that you know, maybe we're just not really good at this. And if we just had a, a predictable rule that required non discriminatory policy, we'd be better off than we would in trying to, to uh, examine these unknowns.
1: And finally, Jim Franz comes in with our final question. He asks Do you have any follow up projects planned after money and the rule of law?
2: I actually, uh, I mean, and each individual of us are have a ton of different projects going on. So you should look at the websites and see, you know, and follow the working papers. But I would say that I think that uh, the, a natural outgrowth of our project is either to push in that direction of alternative institutional arrangements other than a central bank. And so that's one kind of avenue. Or the other one would be to stay within the, confines of the existing institutions in the United States and to pursue the issue of fiscal policy. So if we've, we've taken on the issue of what would be rule-bound monetary policy, what would a predictable and stable fiscal policy look like that could do the job? And I think this is one of the key issues about Buchanan and why he was so important, was because unlike a lot of other free market economists, who think public finance is little more than looking at the books of the mafia or something like that. Buchanan wanted us to look at the way which government structured and institutions that are associated with spending and uh, revenue decisions. So in Buchanan's idea, the linkage between the expenditure decision and the revenue decision has to be tightly linked. Otherwise we engage in wrestling with the fiscal commons. And a large part of concentrating benefit, dispersed cost logic and politics, divorces the revenue decision from the expenditure decision. And with that, you get the kind of intergenerational accounting that has produced such a massive problem in America, right? Which is that we have a gap before COVID of intergenerational accounting of something like a fiscal gap of something like $211 trillion. And since COVID, we've been spending, you know, think again about, you know, wherever you are in the political spectrum. The reality is, is that the infrastructure bill and the and the build back better kind of bill is going to be, government is going to be signing the largest spending bill in the history of mankind, not in the history of the United States, the history of mankind that they are signing off on. It was big enough after the financial crisis when, you know, they signed into ACT, the, the TARP and everything else, it was $800 billion. If you remember, that's, a, you know, that, oh, my God, we're going to get $800 billion. And then look at the numbers that they're doing, you know, this one. Um, and so wherever you are on the idea, you just have to stop for a second, think, oh, wow, like those are real numbers. And they're making those kind of commitments. So I think the fiscal side of this equation is something that would also require a book length treatment like Money and the Rule of Law. And uh, and and you know, hopefully, either us or someone else that is in our same kind of way of thinking is conceiving of doing that. But I can't recommend highly enough, you know, the listeners going to Dan's webpage or to uh, Alex's webpage to look at the work of themselves and their colleagues at their respective centers, and in particular to look at Dan's most recent book with Eileen Norcross on public pensions. And to look at the work that Alex is doing with Andy Young, having to do with um, what you could call microstates um, and the emergence of of the rules and governance structures of these microstates coming out of the mid, mid uh, the medieval period. So, and those are just slices of the research program that both of them are engaged in. But it's very very exciting and just you know we're just really I was just very very fortunate to work with. Two really talented young economists,
3: and we enjoyed the experience as well. I mean, it was um, a smooth and rewarding experience. And this was during COVID nineteen. I had a child, and I think we still turned in the book several months early, if I remember correctly. Um, so yeah, if it, uh, you know, I, I don't think we have anything currently explicitly planned, but um, I, I think we'd be delighted to to work together. We were a great team. I will say that I learned a lot about so especially in business schools, books, um, I think, are underappreciated among economists. And through this experience, you know, we had written, co-authored maybe something like 10 journal articles that served as the basis for this over a decade. And I was amazed at how much I learned the nuance that maybe I'd gotten wrong, things that I would learned since we had written those articles, things that we learned tying them together, um, that you know, I, I realized just writing even several academic articles, I didn't fully grasp what I was working on. And taking the time to write the book actually disciplined me to, and, and, and made me more humble about the topic. Um, and, and that was a, a, a really good experience that I, I definitely expect to um, continue with my future research is, is that model is write academic journal articles, but then try to follow up as, as a book. I think that's a great Insight,
2: actually, because I think that um, you know when you're when you're writing a book, you're kind of forced to get to the essence of an argument, but yet to also keep it tight, and you're trying to link it with other ones, and that requires you to do something more than you would do when you were doing the journal article, which is different. Um, I also think we were very fortunate because the Mercatus Center uh, was right before COVID hit. Uh, the Mercatus Center ran a, a manuscript conference for us, and we had some really good people at that manuscript conference to give us comments and, and discuss ideas with us. David Beckworth, one of them, who's a fantastic monetary economist, but also Dick Wagner was there and some other people and, you know, Larry, and we got really good, you know, comments. Bill, Will Luther was fantastic, Thomas Hogan. And so we we absorbed a lot of information and tried to then process it during that. And then, you know, again, Mercatus, you know, we were able to have a research assistant, a very talented Uh, young scholar, uh, you know, Louis Renaud, I'm maybe saying his name, not quite right, but, uh, you know, he's at Western Kentucky right now, and he was phenomenal. He went through line by line. He has a background in monetary economics. He really, like, you know, checked us and and was great, and of course, you know, working with you and Alex is just, you know, phenomenal. You guys are, you know, have matured as scholars. You're all, you know, uh, tenured full faculty members now building your program. It's been a while since you've been out of graduate school and, you know, watching you, you know, become, you know, these full fledged, really, really serious economic thinkers is just a joy. And again, that's because I think I want to take take credit somewhat for it because of Mercatus and what, you know, our Mercatus programs fill out both for while their students here, but then also the opportunities that Mercatus continues to provide for alumni and other people in after they get out of graduate school and, and whatnot. So I think we're, you know, hopefully we're back to normal and and doing these kind of things again. And and with that will come more and more uh, uh books. Um, though I will tell you from my experience is that when the little ones turn from two to eight, that becomes a different, you know, (laughs) household production function. And when they turn from eight to 15, it becomes a real lot different production. And then you got to wait until they're like 20 and then then life gets good again. So this is a time process of production too. And it's also really thrilling to see, you know, you and Alex with your families and, you know, all the different things. So again, I was, you know, I just am very, very thrilled to see how well, uh, your careers are, uh, you know, evolving and, and just great. So congratulations for that.
3: Thank you, Pete.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Pete. And thank you, Dan, for giving us some of your time today to answer these questions. And just a reminder to everybody, if you want to learn more about the book, you can always purchase it on Amazon and read it there, or you can go into the archives of the Hayek Program podcast, and you can find our book panel discussion, which also features Alex Salter. He was the third co co-author on this book. Thank you once again for listening in, everybody. We do appreciate the time that you give to the podcast, and we do ultimately hope that this is one more step on your journeys to becoming lifelong learners. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.